Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you reach that financial freedom point where your expenses are covered, I think you start to think bigger. You start to think out of like the day-to-day of just how do I get by? I think that had the biggest impact for me is starting to think, okay, what do I really love? What brings me energy? This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome. And we hopped on over to Tennessee, ladies and gentlemen, and found Brandon Thornberry. A referral from Chaz Sutton. And if you remember his episode a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, he talked about building a $200 million portfolio and birds of a feather flock together because Brandon is in the real estate game as well, doing some multifamily. So Brandon, welcome in, man. Thanks for coming on. Oh, Jerome, thanks so much for having me, man. Love uh, chatting real estate and uh, just a pleasure to uh, chat with you today. Sure, man. So I always started this way and I think this is going to be true for you. So you had an exit. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And so that jumps a little way into the story, but we can just go there. So I started out in single family, but later on transitioned more into multifamily and and commercial properties. So my first multifamily I bought was a 32 unit and planned to hold it for decades. And about 10 months in, somebody came along and said, hey, we want to buy this. We've got a 1031 exchange. They made me a really nice offer. And I said, hey, if you can add a little more on top, I'll take the money and run. So about just 12 months into that first complex, I decided to exit out of that. And then I did a 1031 into two more. So that was not what I was planning, but just decided to exit out of that. So it was interesting and learned a lot from it for sure. Yeah. So Let's go back, man, before you you buy the first deal, because I don't think you grew up independently wealthy. I don't think there's a trust fund. You were able to buy a 32-unit apartment complex. What did you do to earn the original money so that you could actually make this investment? Yeah. So I've kind of found when I bought complexes by myself without a JV or a syndication, 
usually involves a few things. So it usually involves me selling a single family house, doing a 1031 out of that, coupling that with some refinances that I'm doing along with some cash that I've had saved up. So that usually is what it looks like unless I'm 1030 out of another multifamily. So I started buying single family in 2005 and built up a single family portfolio and then reached a point where I was like, this is not scalable. So I've started to sell off some of those single family and 1031 into larger deals. So that's how I, I managed to buy my first 32 unit. And luckily that was seller financed. So that made it more helpful because it's hard to qualify for multifamily when you haven't done one. It's kind of a chicken or the egg kind of thing. Like you need experience to be able to get the loan and you need the, you need the deal. So yeah, so it worked out. So how did you get the money to buy the single family homes as rentals? Man, saved up for my first one back in 2005. And then just kind of a lot of your listeners might be familiar with like the Burr method, which is buy, renovate, rent it out, refinance, and then repeat it. And so I just started doing that. First one, it went up in value enough where I was able to pull a HELOC out of it, Mm -hmm. a line of credit. And then I used that line of credit to buy my first duplex. And then it just kind of like slowly starts turning from there. So to the point where I started to have a large enough line of credit where I could go out and I could buy properties with cash in a sense with that line of credit. And that's when it really started turning quick where I could go out, I could be very aggressive on the price point, buy something with cash, and then do that burr method, pull that money out, pay the line of credit down to zero, and then just do it again and just rinse and repeat. So that's how I had to build up the single family portfolio. And so were you, you working a day job or like doing odd jobs or how did you get the first Yeah. So my story is maybe a little unique. I know Maybe some of your guests are more kind of coming out of corporate America. So I was a, I went to school for music business and out of school, I was a tour manager for bands, uh, singer songwriters, and I loved my job. I loved traveling, but I kind of knew that when we would start having kids that I wouldn't want to be on the road. And so I started buying rentals as sort of an exit strategy to get off the road. So didn't hate my job. I wasn't in that camp, but definitely was in this place where I kind of see, I saw it down the road when I would have wanted to have kids, I'd be able to get off the road and do real estate full time. So it's fun. So the real estate was your exit plan. What <laughs> did you do some math in your head and like, I got to have 10 yeah. single family homes so I can quit this thing? Or like, what was the actual plan to get out of that and replace that income? That's a great question. So my plan was to have 20 units to be able to get off the road and do real estate full time. So it lined up very nicely when our first our first child was born. I was right at, right about where I needed to be and took the plunge. So did you leave while you still had the single families or was your transition after you moved into multi? I did single family for, man, I did single family for almost 15 years before I got into multifamily. So it was quite a while. So after I came off the road, I kept doing single family. I started doing flipping houses, wholesaling, got my real estate license. So I did a bunch of things before finally said, hey, let's focus in on one thing instead of being spread thin, doing 
showing people houses, wholesaling, flipping deals, single family. I was doing the whole gamut of real estate. And so had to kind of at some point say, okay, I can't do all of these things well. <laughs> I got to pick something, go deep. And so about 2019 was when I said, let's go full on into multifamily and commercial properties. Okay. So you leave the road, you go into your real estate, full-time real estate entrepreneur is what we'll call it, mm-hmm. right? Were you doing everything at one point? I, I call it chief everything officer. Yeah. Some people are CEOs, but. Oh yeah. Big time. I mean, I was renovating. I was at the job sites, painting walls at single family. I was refinishing hardwood floors, changing out toilets. I was running to show somebody a house because I was a realtor. I was flipping a deal. I was all of it and just hustling. So it was fun, but you start to get to a place where you're like, this isn't sustainable. <laughs> so man, it single family is interesting because you feel like you're moving pretty fast because you're doing a lot of deals. But when you compare it to taking down a multifamily deal, they're not even close. Like multifamily feels sometimes slower because it's really hard to find that first deal, right? It's like mentally challenging to find the first 30 unit, 50 unit, whatever it is. But then once you take it down, it took me like 15 years to buy 50 single family houses. And then in one deal, you're able to take down 32. So yeah, it's just so much more scalable. Wow. Wow. Okay. And so how did you get from chief everything officer? Like who was your first key hire? First key hire feels more like a partnership and that would be hiring property management. So partnering up with a third party management company to come on and manage my apartment complexes. So I decided from day one of multifamily that I was not going to manage it. So that would be my first key hire would be the management company. And then since then, I've, I still have a lot of the single family portfolio, even though I've started to sell it off. So I have somebody here in Nashville that runs my single family. So kind of getting out of the day-to-day of that. And then also just deciding to stop doing some things, stop being a yep. realtor, stop wholesaling, stop flipping just focusing in on the things that I love to do and where I can scale. Yeah, I think that's the game. So my first property management company did not work out. Did yours? Okay. Yeah. What were that? What were some of the challenges? I hired somebody who was used to doing single family to hire multiple. That was in the tween stage. We were doing a 20 unit. Yeah. I also had an eight unit that we did in the same transaction, but they were used to using full on contractors for all the things. And I mean, you just kind of went down the path. I think my expenses were like 70, 80% of my revenue. Mm-hmm. It just yeah. wasn't, they weren't set up to do what we needed to do at scale. Mm-hmm. And so it became extremely frustrating. I broke the contract. They charged me fees, even though they didn't perform at a high level. And it just put a really sour taste in my mouth. And it was funny because I went back to the real estate investment association that I was a part of. And as a president, I talked to a couple of people about it. And then I realized that the president wasn't using this group for their property management. And they were the only other people Mm -hmm. that were doing multifamily in that group. And I was like, oh, well, that would explain a whole lot. And I didn't put two and two together as an aspiring investor. But, you know, you go through the school of hard knocks and you learn a lot of things. And so were you more successful in that? I guess you knew more people because you were actually in the business of being a landlord and so on and so forth. Yeah. And you start to learn like, so I've got 
several multifamily management companies that I work with. So I don't work with just one. And I found that the type of deal kind of directs what type of management company you're going to work with. Because there's some management companies that really specialize in 100 unit plus size with on-site staffing, both an on-site leasing person and a management or a maintenance person. And then you have other companies that are really more geared towards uh, running the 20, 30, or 40 unit complexes. And those things can be very different. So I work with three or four management companies in middle Tennessee area, depending on size and location of the deal. But that's been really eye-opening too, for sure. Well, you see the different ways that people run their businesses and run your property for that matter, right? So there's the actual business of the property management, then specifically to your project and how they do things differently. And as owners of the assets, you probably look at them very similarly, but depending on the property manager... It, it can be a very different experience from day to day and property to property. Absolutely. So are you, do you have like an asset manager in place or an operating officer or you're still direct communication with the property management company? Yeah, I'm still very involved. I really enjoy acquisitions. So I really <laughs> love hunting down deals, putting deals together. And then I also really love envisioning the transformation of the property and then Sometimes, depending on the deal, I'm very involved with the actual execution of carrying out that renovation vision. So that's where I'm still very involved. Not sure yet if I will bring somebody on to take on some of that or not. But for now, I'm just really loving trying to focus in on those few things. Now, what's really cool about this story, and this isn't the traditional model where somebody builds a business up for... 15 or 20 years and then they sell and they get this huge wire and they're like, what do I got to do with it? Like you're honing the skills of being a wealth manager through the Mm -hmm. whole journey, right? You started out with the single family homes, grew that portfolio. Now you exited some of those and then you put down on a 32 unit as luck would or fate would have it. You get to exit that in about a 12 month cycle. And then you go into two more and then there's probably more and then there's probably more, right? At right. the end of the day, though, like you have all these different businesses. And so for in essence, you're actively growing your portfolio as you progress versus like saving it all up until one major liquidity event happens. And mm-hmm. I say that to make it very clear to the listener that there are multiple ways to get to the post-exit portfolio, which we call Exit 7, which is where you've allocated a tremendous amount of capital that has allowed you to create income through the ownership of assets and not through your blood, sweat, tears, and time, which is what most people trade in order to get compensated on an active income basis. And so I don't know if you want to talk about the 32-unit exit or another one, but what I would like to do is talk about the biggest exit that you've had to date, right? And I'll yeah. call it the pot of gold for all intents and purposes. Let's go back because I think you've got that in your mind now. What was your first exposure to someone selling a business? Man, I haven't had a lot of exposure to people selling businesses. I know I think since I've never really been in corporate America, I've never really been around that kind of thing. That hasn't been something I've been much around. I've been mostly in the real estate world where my buddies are selling houses or complexes. 
which are kind of small businesses in and of themselves. But yeah, never really had, never really been in that world too much, to be honest. Well, I, I guess really I'm asking the question in the context of how'd you know that you could sell it? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I know people think they can sell a house. Got it, right? You, you buy yeah. a house, you sell a house. But this is a little more sophisticated and it's a little more complicated. And not doing it right can cost you a whole lot of money. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, what's interesting about that deal is I almost canceled it. Got it under contract and did the inspection report. And it came back so bad. And I went to some mentors, looked at it. They looked at it. They said, hey, I don't think you should do this deal. I took it to a management company. They said they wouldn't even manage it because it was so bad. Just to give you like one kind of crazy story, we were doing the inspection and went into one unit and the tenant was there and he showed me that the current owner, the seller, they had to cut a section out of the living room floor to repair some ductwork or something. And when they were done, instead of replacing the subfloor, they put the carpet over top of the hole. And then they just had the tenant place the couch over top of that hole so nobody would fall through it. So that was the type of deal I was getting into. <laughs> and it was very intimidating. And so I went to lunch with the seller because it was direct to seller with full intentions of canceling this deal. And he said, well, what if I gave you money off concessions to make up for the repairs that were needed? And I thought to myself, well, I was excited about this deal before I got the inspection report. What would it take to get me back to that? And we just went through all the things that we had found and assigned numbers to it. And he took that amount off of the purchase price and I decided to go for it. So it was a little stressful. I might've had a few sleepless nights (laughs) during that first deal. So I would say I felt like if I could get those units renovated, that I knew I could cash flow it. I wasn't really looking toward the exit as so much as I was trying to get a really great cash flowing asset. And so rents were like five fifty a unit and I thought I could get them up to a thousand in which we, we did accomplish that. And so when you have that kind of like delta on a multifamily deal, there is huge upside. So if your listeners kind of understand cap rate, you know, at a six cap, every additional dollar in monthly income that you add adds $200 in value. So take like a thousand unit, right? I mean, a, a 10 unit. If you can add $200 in monthly income, and this is kind of simplifying it, I think, a little bit because you do have management fees you have to take out. But if you have a 10 unit and you add $200 per unit per month, so $2,000 additional income per month, multiply that by 200. So then that adds $400,000 in value to your property. So that's kind of what I was looking at as far as adding value to this property. And my plan was to basically do the burger method on that property. It was to drive up the value, which that's great about multifamily because you can actually force the value. And so I wanted to drive up value and then do a refi and pull capital out and then go buy another deal. So that was my original plan for the exit and instead decided to sell it when that buyer came along. Got it. Got it. Got it. (laughs) No, I think it's perfect, right? Because it shows people the way that you can grow the value of the property with relatively small investment. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty big deal because I know people are trying to figure out how to get the most out of their properties. So as you were going through the process of exiting, did you have someone help you with it? So a broker had 
What's interesting about multifamily is kind of once you're in the club, you're in this weird little, as you own multifamily yourself, you're in this very small community. And so brokers actually start calling you once you buy a deal because they see that you, you're a closer. And so a broker had reached out and said, Hey, we'd like to just bring you in and do a presentation and talk about your property. And I told them I had no intentions of selling. And they said, well, let's just meet anyways, which is great to build those relationships. And so came in, talked about the property a little bit. And then a week later, they emailed me this LOI from this, this buyer that wanted to buy the property. So, so there was some assistance from a broker on selling that property for sure. How'd you find them? The broker? Yeah. They reached out to me. I guess saw on CoStar that this property had traded and tracked down my phone number and they gave me a call. Did, so what are a couple of things that went really well? for you in the exit? In that exit, I guess the biggest thing is taking that 1031 money and going and finding two more deals to go into out of that deal. So, and and being able to drive up those rents to be able to have the, the concept. So we renovated two units at the complex. Sorry, maybe four. We probably renovated four and we're able to prove out that we could take those rents from 550 to 1,000. And, and then that, I guess, gave the buyer confidence that they could come out and they could finish out the rest of the units and execute on the plan that we'd started. Was there anything that didn't go so well? Yeah. Lots of things as far as lots of surprises in the renovation, finding good subs to do quality work. But I think the biggest realization from that deal is while it was a good payout, I wasn't like as excited about it as I thought I'd be. <laughs> So it was interesting after I sold that deal, I just kind of posted on socials like, hey, what's the most exciting day for you? Is it the day you buy or the day you sell? And it was about 50-50. And for me, it was definitely the day that I buy is the day I'm excited. Like I'm ready to get after it. I'm ready to start renovating, working on this. And the day I sell, is that's okay. But where's the next one? And not in like a complaining way or anything. I'm happy and blessed to have sold that, but... It was definitely eye-opening that like it wasn't really the money that was motivating me. It was more building something and transforming something and also providing quality and affordable housing for people. So it was interesting seeing that large of an exit and then not being as excited about it as I thought it would be. So I don't know. That was that was interesting for me. So did you get a check or did you get a wire? Well, I never got either <laughs> because I didn't one. So you see, obviously you see the, the net that you, you're getting on this deal, but no, it never hits your bank account because this third party is holding it. So yeah. Is that, do you think that would have made a difference if it went in your that's, account? That's a great question. I think for a moment, I think for a moment to see those digits in your bank account, it would have been like, that's pretty cool. But then it would quickly fade for me. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential, but lack the strategy, support and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, aka the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. 
When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. Now, with this said, was this the largest amount of money that was ever yours, even if it didn't go into your account? Yes. How'd you celebrate? How did I celebrate? That is a great question. I think my wife and I went out to dinner, but nothing too crazy. I think I was already like, okay, where's the next one? What are we doing? (laughs) What am I buying? So yeah, I don't even remember. That is a good question. Yeah. Man. The biggest exit of your career, you don't even remember how you celebrate it. <laughs> yeah. Not sure what that really says, but uh, it was anticlimactic, is what it says. I mean, at the yeah. end of the day, right? Like, I think you are disconnected from it, which is really cool, right? A lot of times people will get this money. It's like they hit a the lottery, they blow it. You have it wrapped up in the most tax efficient strategy that I think for most people is available to them. And so you're disconnected from it. And now, this is just the asset that's going to send you cash flow for mm-hmm. hopefully the rest of your life. And you talked about little people. So maybe your children will be able to benefit from it as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. So have you met or gotten to the place where your passive income exceeds your needs from an active income or expense standpoint? Yes. So met that. So that's financial freedom. Did you find that hitting the financial freedom number scratched the itch for you? Like, did you feel like it was, you'd arrived at some place and maybe the pressure was off or you could just put your feet up or were you still like craving and seeking and searching something after that? Definitely did not. I definitely did not find I just arrived and I want to go sit on a beach. Definitely did not reach a point where I was like, Okay, I'm out (laughs) for sure. I think what it did do for me is when you're in kind of the the grind of like, hey, I need to make this every month, you're less open to opportunity. Like when I was in the, I need to do enough deals as a realtor kind of mode, you're kind of just like, what do I need to do to make money this month? How many deals do I need to do? And when you reach that financial freedom point where you're, expenses are covered. I think you start to think bigger. You start to think out of like the day-to-day of just how do I get by? And so mm-hmm. I think that was what was the, had the biggest impact for me that is starting to think, okay, what, what do I really love? What brings me energy? What are the things that drain my energy that I'd like to have in my life? And that's where it really had the biggest impact. But it was weird reaching that point and not being like, okay, I'm just going to go relax on a beach. I still just want to get up every day and just build something. So, yeah. And so sometimes I'll hear people say things like, yeah, I didn't, it didn't scratch the itch. I was looking for something else. I thought I would feel something different than that. A lot of times they'll say that they were looking for meaning or significance or purpose because they solved the money problem. Now you said build something and that seems like it's on that path, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Is that what you're chasing or seeking now? Or is it just the fact that there's something that you can work on? I think it's a lot of having something I can work on. 
One thing I probably a little unique on is I think a lot of real estate investors use real estate as a vehicle, which I definitely do. But I really love just buildings themselves. Like I love taking an old dilapidated commercial building and turning it into an art gallery, something like that. So that's the type of thing that really like gives me a lot of energy. And so I just, I love multifamily and that was great in renovating those. That can get a little bit vanilla. I think what really kind of excites me is getting more and more into creative multifamily spaces and taking old historic buildings and renovating them. So that gets me excited probably more than anything. What's your connection? Connection to it? To the dilapidated buildings and art or whatever creative use you would have for them. Yeah, I think it's kind of taken in some ways being an artist with taking old buildings and doing something really cool with them. So I love kind of coming into an old space and saying, hey, can, what can we do with this and how can we revitalize it? So breathing life in this stuff, the creation. Yeah. Absolutely. So I don't really want like a unit count goal or anything like that. No, I'm more just kind of focusing on doing deals that excite me, doing deals with people I enjoy spending time with, and doing deals that provide housing for people, quality housing, and deals that where I can come in and transform something. Why do you care about the quality housing? There's a lot of folks out there who are just trying to figure out how to get as much as they can out of their real estate. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it really matters to me that people enjoy living in the spaces that I provide. And it's been like that from day one. I just, I want people to be happy about the unit they're living in or the house that they're living in. I love going to a complex that I own and seeing kids swimming in the pool and having fun and that just brings me joy. So yeah, that's a great question. I think that, yeah, just really enjoy providing good housing to people where they can have a quality life. It sounds like it's an experience. And if we think back to your days on the road, like your responsibility was creating a good experience for the folks that you were entrusted in your care, right? The folks you yeah. were managing. <laughs> and I feel like if you're an experienced creator, that doesn't ever go away. And it's a different kind of art, right? It's not oil on canvas. It's right. not recording an instrument on a track. But it's helping people, you're curating their life, for lack of a better term. And with the housing in particular, like they spend more time in their home than they do in any other environment. And so for you to be able to influence that through the resource allocation, as well as the plan to actually operate and revitalize those properties, I think you continue to go down the same vein that you've been going down. And so you said you didn't have a, a unit count, but as we think about this post-exit portfolio or yeah, the post-exit portfolio, is there like a certain size where you want to be able to divest it? I know that you mentioned that you do deals in all three ways, right? You do it personally, yeah. you do mm -hmm. joint ventures and you do syndications. And so is there a goal to have like a specific income from your personal portfolio or are you thinking about maybe putting all your joint ventures together and rolling them up and sending them to somebody else or the syndications are they just kind of one off like is there there seems to be an overarching strategy or theme even if you aren't trying to get to a specific yep. door count number yeah yeah i do have an income goal that i'm trying to hit right now so i'm focusing in on that 
And that's to provide, I want to have some epic travel with my family. Also have a house that I have in my mind that I wanted to build. So that's in there. We, we just got done converting a school bus into a motorhome. So we travel around on that and have a blast. Yeah. So I do have an income goal that I'm pursuing. And I have no, at this point, belief that when I hit that income goal, I'm going to be like, oh, right, because I've done that and it doesn't. But I think having goals kind of inform like what you need to do right now to hit that. And so for me, it's kind of more like what person am I becoming and how do I become that person? How do I level up? How do I put more systems in place so I can have more margin in my life? I like what Michael Hyatt calls the double win, winning at work and succeeding at life. And so that's become a little mantra for me. So growing a business, building something, but still having more and more margin and space with my family. So those are really my two two goals right now. So this is the first time I've actually heard somebody characterize it that way, creating more margin in your life. And so I hear a lot of people talk about margin as profit margin mm-hmm. or margin on cost of goods or whatever the thing is, right? But you said margin in your life. So it sounds like the highest, the resource you value the most is time? Absolutely. By far. Big time. Yeah. Now, I know the listeners are probably curious because we talk about development all the time. Are you working with a coach or like what's shaping you or who's shaping you or how are you shaping this development so that you can continue to grow to that next level because you've made some pretty big leaps and you look like a young man for a relatively short amount of time for best I can tell. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't currently have a coach, although it's something I've definitely explored and I think there's a lot of value there. So for me, it's a lot of books that I read, podcasts that I listen to, meetups that I go to, friends I hang out with. But I would say the biggest impact are books. There's okay. great development books, business books. That's had the biggest impact on me. I spend a lot of time planning on my weeks, journaling, those types of things to really zone in and focus on what's the ne- next actionable step to get me closer to my goal. So that's where I spend most of my time as far as personal development. That's, I find that really fascinating. So are you actually turning the pages in the books or are you listening to them? Because some people will say they're reading books and they're listening. Yeah, good question. I am turning pages. So I'm big on scribbling notes and it takes there me a while to read a book because I'm kind of probably reading it twice and I'm writing and taking down notes and really kind of digesting it. So yeah, it takes me a while to get through something. Got it, got it, got it, got it. And have you always loved reading books? Because as a kid, I did not want to read a book unless I had to. Yeah. I have always loved reading books, especially personal development business books, for sure. So probably need to spend a little bit more time reading some fiction. (laughs) But uh, yeah, if I could just dive into a personal development book, I love it. Absolutely love it. Let's jump back to the real estate because like diving into how you got to this place is interesting. I know some of this is, hey, I need to keep some of these in order to, or a lot of these in order to get to my income number faster. Mm-hmm. Are you like stacking up your portfolio companies, which is each piece of property each year and saying, hey, this one isn't doing well. I want it out. Yes. Or this one's doing really well. I want to keep it. Like, how are you kind of stacking those and comparing those and 
put in that yeah. piece of the puzzle together? Yeah, and that's that's a that's a great question because some of my single family I'm holding on to a little bit longer because of the location. So this is very much in the weeds, but Oracle is moving its headquarters to Nashville and the majority of my single family portfolio is within one mile of Oracle's future headquarters. So I'm holding on to this single family a little longer with the plan to exit at some point when it feels like I'm looking at a crystal ball and it's good timing. I don't know when that'll be. It'll probably be 24, 36 months, maybe 48 months. And then I have some other single family that are sort of outside of that, that are still in up and coming areas, but they kind of need a major refresh. And so to go in and put in that extra capital, the break-even analysis doesn't make sense, right? So some of my single family, I'm starting to say, okay, let's let that one loose. It's kind of taken a beating. And for me to bring it back up to a really good level, it would just take capital that wouldn't make sense. So I'm kind of selling them off one by one. Some people take the approach where they're going to just take their whole single family portfolio and just sell it off. And I totally get that, but I'm being a little more just strategic about it as I go. I like that because, I mean, each of them probably has their own P&L, mm-hmm. so you can evaluate them in that merit. And yeah. I, it's funny that you brought up the break-even analysis doesn't make sense. It's always interesting to me when I see somebody spend 25 or 30 grand in order to sell the thing for $35,000 more, mm-hmm. I'm just like, mm-hmm. yeah. it wasn't worth the risk and it probably wasn't worth the headache in order to make that. So you probably could have just, or probably should have just sold it for where it was at, or at least gone under contract and then see if you could make it work within the confines of that agreement. Yeah. This has been so good, Brandon. One last question I'd, I'd love to slip in here is just the thoughts around the 1031. I think some people are like, kick the can down the road, just 1031 until you die, never pay the taxes, and whoever inherited gets the stepped up cost basis. And then there are other people are like, I'd rather pay the taxes now than be trapped right. in the 1031. Was there, I assume, just based on our conversation, that was an intentional and deliberate decision, not yeah. something that just kind of happened because somebody mentioned it on in passing. So what led you to take the path that you have when it comes to what you do with the proceeds from your transactions? Yeah, and I see both sides of that for sure, especially if future political situations, maybe taxes are even higher. So maybe it's, I see it from that perspective. For me, I want that money now so that I can put it to use. My biggest thing is velocity of money. So if I can recycle that money, if I can have it now, and I can recycle it a bunch of times, I feel like that's going to have a bigger impact than taking that tax hit now. Even if sometimes I invest as an LP in other people's deals. So I take my Roth and my SIP and I use that as my LP money. So I like to see deals where there's a potential for a refi within 24 months to get my capital back, but still be in that deal or money. So I see it kind of similar similar to the 1031 with those two things, if that makes sense. Now, did you take any money out of retirement or anything else to kind of start building this stuff or it was all after tax money? Here we go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I actually did a 1031 into that 32 unit and then a 1031 out of it. So 
cost basis is getting lower and lower. <laughs> so definitely want to keep doing the 1031 if I can. Yeah. It can get ugly if you don't. Mm-hmm. Man. Yeah. Well, especially if you throw in uh, cost segregation on top of that and you have that yeah. recapture tax. So that's going to be, that's even bigger. So yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't want to know what my tax hit would be at this point because it's just stacked upon stacked. So yeah. You have to make sure that you have a great strategy. I think one thing that a lot of people miss is that taxes, once you get to a certain level, are your biggest expense. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a good plan to manage them, it'll just eat up your wealth. And so absolutely, I, I really appreciate the way that this conversation went today because it opens up people's eyes to a lot of the challenges that come when you start becoming a wealth manager. If you're just relying on your CPA or your financial advisor to guide your strategy, and this isn't something they do, alternative investments is different than long and short-term gains in the stock market. Although it still has the same tax implications. Um, There's some other things that you can do in order to reduce the amount of money that's owed in taxes with these alternative investments. But you better know what you're doing because if you don't, you're going to be writing Uncle Sam a big old check. And that's that's not ever something that people are really excited about doing. So Brandon, thank you so much for joining us on the Dreamcatchers podcast. My final question is who else should we have on the show, man? You came because Chad thought you'd be a great fit. And we always like to get some recommendations on other folks who can come in and share wisdom with the folks who are working on their exits. Yeah. So one thing we didn't get to touch on is another company that I have, which is a hard money lending company here in Middle Tennessee. So my business partner is Will Coleman, and he's a rock star operator. And I'd love to see him on the podcast. And together we're scaling up a hard money lending company here in Middle Tennessee. So it's been really fun. And yeah, he's super impressive. So he'd be great to have on here. Well, we're going to dive deep with Will on on the science of hard money lending, but that may be a term that's new for the listeners. Mm-hmm. And so if you mm-hmm. don't mind, would you explain what that is and why that makes sense? Because yeah. it's powerful if you can actually figure out how to do this yeah. without losing your capital, which Absolutely. is not fun. Yeah. So hard money lending is essentially another term for private lending in a sense. And so Sometimes when people are doing a real estate deal, for whatever reason, there's multiple reasons, a traditional loan through a bank just isn't going to make sense. So they're going to go out and seek private money or hard money. And hard money, the term hard money is because it's lending on a hard asset. So it's a loan. We're always first lien position on a piece of real estate. And so when somebody might need to close quickly on the deal, or maybe the deal's just a little outside of the box of what their bank can do. We're going to come in and we're going to loan on it. We're typically uh, very short term. So sometimes we're loaning literally for 24 hours for what's called a transactional deal. And then other times we're loaning for up to about six months. So especially right now when lending is a little funky, hard money lending can be a great resource. If you're out there doing flipping, you can reach out to a hard money lender to fund your deals. Man, man, man. Guys, you got to check it out when Will jumps on the podcast. Brandon, <laughs> this has been awesome, man. We're, we're talking about real wealth building opportunities. And I'm sure that investing in a multifamily and some of the other cool stuff you've done in real estate has dramatically changed your net worth and been a game changer from 
the communities that you've been able to impact through your vision and your mission of providing quality housing and experiences to the folks that are owners or I'm sorry, renters or residents at the properties that you own. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience, man. Thank you, man. This has been awesome. All right. To the listeners, your dreams should be real. We'll talk to you on the next episode. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.